sit down. And uh, let me encourage you to take a a Bible in your hand and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, page 1172, page 1172. And I suggest you have your service order in the other hand and uh, you can use that as a fan. And if we keep doing this all the way through, we should stay awake. Galatians chapter 5, page 1172. And then let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, we've just been singing that we're being changed into your likeness. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. I know I'm changed. That's his work. I can't deny your power within me. Lord, we pray that that would be true for us, that we wouldn't in any way try to stop the work of the Spirit in us, that we would be changed and transformed. And so as we go from here, we'd be people who were more useful than we could ever be if we tried to go on our own. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the Bibles in front of you, have a look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Uh, Paul writes, You, my brothers, were called to be free. Christian, you are free. It's a terrific thing. But having freedom is not entirely straightforward. It's a great thing, but not straightforward. In many ways, it's actually much easier to live by rules. Uh, Take the student arriving at university as an example. It sounds great to be free from the restrictions of living with your parents. No one telling you what time you have to be home at night. No one telling you to get up in the morning. No one telling you to get on with your studies. No one telling you where you can and can't socialise. It sounds terrific. But I wonder how many students here would agree that after a while you realise it's tough because life without restraint doesn't work. And now the student realises they have no one to make the decisions for them. They have to work it out for themselves. And that's why in many ways living for Christ is so much harder than being religious. And that is a crucial distinction we have to make if we're going to understand the book of Galatians. Living for Christ is so much harder than being religious. Religion is all about rules and regulations. It's about ticking the right boxes. But Christianity is not that at all. That's why Christians often come to speak with me about difficult life decisions. They wouldn't have to come and meet with me if they could just open their Bible and it said, stack shelves in Tesco's. Or go to Leeds University. Or marry marry Drusilla Ackroyd. Whoever she is. Freedom is a wonderful thing, but it's not an easy thing. Do you see the point? And that's why Paul writes as he does in Galatians chapter 5. See, chapter 5, verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Now, we are free in Christ, but uh, before we look on, what does that freedom mean? Let me uh, just take us back a little bit in the book of Galatians so that we can get our mind back into this book before we move on. Uh, Two things, if I may, about what it means to be free. Firstly, in Christ we are free from the power of sin. Uh, Flip back to chapter 3 and verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22. Do you see it there? The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. And naturally, everyone is an inmate locked in the prison house of sin. I cannot live as I should. It's not just that I don't live as I should, but I can't live as I should. 
Sin has taken me captive. Now, do you know that feeling? Of course you do. If you're honest with yourselves, we all know the truth of that. Uh, We know it when we make New Year's resolutions. On the 1st of January, you make a promise to break a habit. But you know how the old saying goes. January the 2nd is the day when it's easier to break a promise than it is to break a habit. Never mind New Year's resolutions. Uh, You'll know the truth of chapter 3, verse 22, if you've ever tried to turn over a new leaf. Have you ever tried to be a nicer person? Have you ever tried to be kind or patient or gentle or good or self-controlled? Trying to be those things and realising that I couldn't was one of the main reasons I became a Christian. I was 20 years old, but I can remember it as vividly as if it was today. I was 20 years old and I wanted to live differently. I wanted to be a better person, but I couldn't do it. Do you know that feeling? I was actually about to move out of my my parents' home. I was buying my own flat and my mum said to me one day, you treat this house like a hotel. She must have said that dozens of times before, maybe hundreds of times before, because all mums say that, don't they? Did your mum say that to you? You treat this house like a hotel. It's one of the great lines in the the, the sort of mum's handbook of how to raise teenagers. She must have said it hundreds of times before, but this time it hit me like a ton of bricks. She was right. Now, that's not good for a teenager to admit either, that that your mum's right. Well, I was 20. Maybe I was just getting out of that. But I did treat the family home like a hotel. I expected a meal on the table. I expected my laundry to be washed. I expected everything to be done for me. My mum was right. And so I tried to change. I was determined to be the model son. I reckoned it wouldn't be so tough. I was moving out in a couple of months. I didn't have to keep it up for long. A couple of months? I couldn't keep it going for a couple of weeks. Now that was just one of the many ways I realised the truth of chapter 3, verse 22. That I, along with everyone else who walks this planet, am a prisoner, locked in the prison house of my sin. And no matter how I tried, and I did try, but no matter how I tried, I couldn't break free. Do you know that feeling? Of course you do. The Bible tells me I'm a sinner. And crucially, in the debate with the Galatians, the law, God's law, cannot help me escape. Quite the opposite. Look at verse 23. The law holds me prisoner. Chapter 5, verse 23, that is. Still, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 23, still. The law holds me prisoner. The law tells me I'm a sinner. The law tells me how I should live and I can't live it. The law doesn't help me to break free from sin. It keeps me in prison. But in Christ, we will see, we are free from the power of sin. That's what Paul has been writing. And secondly, in Christ, we are free from slavery to the law. See, the Galatians knew knew about Jesus. They had trusted Jesus to bring them forgiveness from their sin. But then some false teachers had come in among them and started to tell them that they had to keep God's law in order to be right with God. That trusting Christ alone wasn't enough. There was more to do. They had to keep God's law. And not least of all, the three great marks of Judaism, Sabbath observance, circumcision and food laws. And look what Paul says of that false teaching. Chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, 
When you did not know God, you were slaves, see there's the word again, to those who by nature are not gods, but now you know God, or rather are known by God. How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Why are you turning away from freedom? Why do you want to be a slave again when Christ has set you free? And what were they being enslaved by? Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. You see what's going on? The false teachers were insisting that to be right with God, oh yeah, you had to turn to Christ, but you also had to keep the law of God when it came to special days. Yes, you needed Christ, but you needed more as well. So as we look at chapter 4, verse 10, it's not hard to imagine that they had a Keep Sunday special campaign and a drive to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, and a keep the year of Jubilee promotion pack that you could take away with you on a a Saturday? Because the false teachers among them were saying, if you don't keep these special days, then you're not a Christian. Think of it this way. I think that Easter is an important Christian festival. I happen to believe that uh, that it's important and valuable for us to celebrate Easter. But... If I said that if you go on holiday over Easter and you don't come to church on Easter Sunday, then you are not a Christian, do you see what I've done? If I said that, at that moment I have enslaved you. Because then your salvation, your salvation is dependent on the keeping of special days. As soon as I insist on a law to make me right with God, I've become a slave to that law. I must keep it or I won't be saved. That's the Galatian heresy. And that's what Jesus has set me free from. And so gloriously, Paul says, chapter 5, verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Isn't it wonderful? In Christ I am free from the power of the law. I'm free from slavery to the law and I'm free from the penalty of the law. I'm free. But, verse 13, that raises a huge issue. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but... Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. So I was explaining the gospel to a small group of people on Thursday evening. I had a great time. Uh, They'd asked me to go and speak to them and uh, there they were asking me great questions and we went through the gospel and one person asked me, if Jesus' death gets me right with God, see they'd understood the gospel, if Jesus' death gets me right with God, then does that mean I can do whatever I like? It's a great question. It means you've understood the gospel when you ask that. Now, understandably, the Galatians felt very nervous about that. I think their concern was probably a little bit more subtle. If I'm free from the law, how will I know what to do? And what will actually keep me doing the right thing? When I've got laws to keep, I know what I'm supposed to do. Now, Paul says here, then don't misunderstand Christian freedom. You, my brothers, verse 13, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature See, the sinful nature is the very thing that gets me in trouble with God in the first place. Uh, The sinful nature is me in my natural state, going my own way, doing my own thing. And it's the sinful nature that separates me from God. It's the sinful nature that actually enslaves me. The sinful nature means that I can't do the right thing even when I want to. That's why I know we've all experienced that. Because we're all sinful. So, of course, Christian freedom is not a carte blanche to do whatever you like. That would be ridiculous. Uh, One writer explains it like this. 
Uh, Think about three types of dog on the city streets. Uh, The first dog spends his days chained to a post, barking and straining at the leash, longing to get away. Is that dog a happy dog? Of course not. You've seen dogs like that. They're not happy. That's how I was before I became a Christian. I couldn't get free from my sinful nature. I was chained. Uh, The second dog roams the streets. He has no master. He's a law to himself. He seems to be free. He's spending his days rummaging in dustbins. He's scraggy and scruffy. Is he a happy dog? I don't think so. And that kind of freedom leaves you purposeless and homeless and hopeless. And when you live that kind of selfish life, just doing whatever you want, it will leave a trail of destruction behind you. We'll see that later on in the passage. The third dog walks at his master's side. There is no leash Yet he rarely strays far from his master and he's always ready to obey the master's call. Is he a happy dog? Just look at his tail wagging. That's Christian freedom. Verse 13, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Don't be a law to yourself, selfishly running after whatever you like. Rather, verse 13, serve one another in love. Christians are not, if I can use this phrase, antinomian. I only throw it in because if you read commentaries, you'll hear it. It simply means we are not against the law. Antinomian. We're not that. God's law is good. Look what Paul goes on to say in verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbour as yourself. That is a good way to live, isn't it? Loving other people. It's a good way to live. God's law is good. But it is no good in trying to get me right with God because I can't keep that law completely. I can't love my neighbour as myself. I can't love you as I should. So the law can't bring me salvation. Only Jesus can do do that. But once Jesus has brought me salvation, well, then I'm free, free from the power of law and I'll want to love my neighbour because it's a good thing to do. The law is good. We're not antinomian. We're not against the law. God's law is a good thing. And that's what Paul's saying here. And as Philip Hacking pointed out very arrestingly last week, verse 13 is a remarkable verse. Paul writes, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather be a slave, is actually what he says, to others in love. Use your freedom to choose to be a slave. It's a striking thought, isn't it? Choose to love others. Use your freedom to do the right thing. Until you're in Christ, you can't do the right thing. Now that you are in Christ, choose to do the right thing. In Christ, we can do that. We can love others. By contrast, and I think this is the key point in understanding this passage, by contrast, if I'm relying on the law to make me right with God, it will never result in me loving others. In fact, quite the opposite. Look how the Galatians were treating each other. Verse 15, they were destroying each other, biting and devouring each other. And will you listen in now? That is what happens when you try to get right with God through religion. Verse 15 is what happens when you try to get right with God through keeping religious laws. Look down to verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. See, religion, law-keeping, does that. It results in conceit or envy. 
Let me explain why. Religion is about ticking boxes. Have you kept this law, that law and the other law? Have you kept these special days special? Have you kept the food laws? Have you been circumcised? Have you ticked all the boxes? If you have, then you're in. But do you see how that wrecks relationships? Those who felt they had kept the law, who felt they had ticked the boxes, became conceited, verse 26. That's what happens with religious people, isn't it? I've, kept all the bo- I've, I've ticked all the boxes, I've kept all the law. What a wonderful person I am. Just think about great Aunt Ethel. She's a religious Anglican. Down through the years, her religion has made her a very moral person, but when she comes to tea, you begin to see that, that what that religious moralism has done to her. Uh, she picks up the Sunday newspaper, and in between sipping her Earl Grey and eating the rather delicious tea cake that you've given her, she begins to tut-tut about the appalling state of British society. And you have to agree with her that with gun crime and knife crime as it is, not to mention the appalling drink culture, it makes you wonder where it's all going to end. But as great Aunt Ethel speaks of the hoodlums behind the crimes, you see that it makes her feel very good about herself. She says, I really can't understand them. If I can be good, if I can live an upright life, if I can be a good citizen, then there's no excuse for it. And she takes another sip of her Earl Grey. Religion makes people proud and conceited, verse 26. And verse 15, it sees you biting at others because they haven't reached the standard. And so those who don't reach the standard are, verse 15, devoured by religion and religious people. And they look at great Aunt Ethel in the congregation and they envy her. That's verse 26 as well. Because they feel depressed about their failures. They know they haven't ticked all the boxes and it destroys them, verse 15. Now you see, that's what religion and law-keeping does. It destroys good relationships. It is a disaster for church. Let me say that again. Religion is a disaster for a church. It destroys a church. Or to put it another way, wherever you have legalism in a church, divisions will follow. Not might, they will follow. Because then people look down their noses at others and say, they're not spiritual enough, they're not holy enough, they're not self-controlled enough, they don't fit in. Or people will feel rubbish about themselves and they'll say, I don't fit in because I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not holy enough, I'm not self-controlled enough. I haven't ticked the boxes and they have and then they'll envy other people. But either way, it doesn't work, do you see? That's what religion does to us. But Paul says you are free from all that. The gospel does something quite different. It frees me from all that. It tells me that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I am no better than anyone else. I am a child of God just the way that everyone else becomes a child of God through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when I believe that, it will transform relationships because I'll love other people. I won't envy you or I won't look down my nose at you. I'll be prepared to make a slave of of myself for others, putting you first, because I'm nothing. I don't feel good about myself. But equally, I don't envy you, because you're a saved sinner too. Isn't that wonderful? See the difference the gospel makes from religion 
And so Paul says in this next section, well, how can I live that way? Oh, I'm free from the law. That doesn't mean I can just go and do whatever I like, but I do like the idea of this, of of loving. How, How can I do that? Ah, says Paul. Verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. See, the Galatian heresy, salvation by me ticking religious boxes, comes from the sinful nature. But the gospel, the gospel of salvation through Christ alone, comes from the Holy Spirit. So live by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The sinful nature, as we've already seen, ruins relationships and the Holy Spirit makes us love other people. That's what he's going to go on to say. And it's very clear from these two great lists, the list in verse 19 to 21 and then the list in verses 22 and 23. These two great lists show you what what you will do if you leave it to yourself and what you will do if you allow the Holy Spirit to control you. The sinful nature, verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Very important. It's not an exhaustive list. Verse 21, and the like. This is not a complete list of the acts of the sinful nature. We can think up lots more. But this list is comprehensive enough to show me that the sinful nature hurts people and ruins relationships. Now take the first one. We'll just take two or three of them. We can't go through them all. Take the first one, sexual immorality. We think sexual restraint is such an old-fashioned Victorian puritanical restriction that's laid on us. I suddenly realised that again, that, it's still, um, it's that people still think that way when I read the, 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 the Times News Review from, from last week. It's got a picture on that's not very helpful, so I won't show you. Um, but um, it's called Guilty Pleasures. I'm afraid I've got to look at the picture, but I'm trying to read the words. And it says like this, uh, Once upon a time, couples were expected to fall in love, marry and live happily and faithfully together ever after. Is it right to expect fidelity in marriage today? And the whole point of the, the, uh, of, the, of the article is to say that one guy thinks actually, you know, it's actually very normal to want many sexual partners. Now let me quote a couple of parts of it. The hunger for sexual variety is a basic and, natu- is, is, is a basic and natural and more or less irresistible impulse. Just natural for you to want to have lots of partners sexually. Almost irresistible. Uh, This is what it says. There is no more unnatural principle of social organisation than sexual exclusivity. It's thoroughly unnatural to expect you to get married and and, and only have sex with one person for the rest of your life. That's thoroughly unnatural, it says here. And and they'll even turn to science for it. Men's genes programme them to seek many mates and try to monopolise the reproductive lives of those mates. Do you know that's what you're doing, men? You want to monopolise women. You want your genes to be out there in as many different women as possible. So we're programmed to have many different sexual partners. We should be free to do that. That's what this stuff is saying. You see, it's live and well. It's all here, all today. Paul says, don't you believe it? Whatever you call it, whatever scientific label you put on it, when you've seen the pain and destruction of sexual immorality, you don't believe this kind of stuff at all. In this job I found myself walking into homes just hours after a husband has been found cheating on his wife. 
And I don't think you need to tell me how devastated that home was. Hollywood paints a happy ever after picture, even when it says that it's painful. Basically, it's happy ever after, isn't it? When people are sexually immoral. Don't believe it. It causes huge pain. Long after the issue is resolved, there's still pain. In this job, I find myself mopping up the mess after an unmarried couple have slept together and then have parted. At the time, they thought their sexual activity was wonderful. But just look at them when the relationship has ended. I mean, breaking up is always difficult to do, but the sex has made the parting so much harder. Sexual immorality wrecks lives. That's the point. That's why it's here. Well, let's look at another one. Verse 20, selfish ambition. Now, don't misread this. Uh, There's nothing wrong with healthy, godly ambition, but selfish ambition. Just watch The Apprentice on BBC. Yeah, so many of you have seen it, haven't you? Uh, People walking all over others, being sly and two-faced, praising other contestants when they're with them, but stabbing them in the back when their own aspirations are on the line. Selfish ambition is horrible. Makes great viewing, but it's horrible. And many of you will witness it tomorrow firsthand in the in the workplace. Selfish ambition wrecks lives. And if you are selfishly ambitious, it will stop you from loving your neighbour as yourself, which is the fulfilling of the law. Well, let's take another one, shall we? Uh, verse twenty and twenty one factions and envy. I think that, although it doesn't seem quite so, um, quite so spicy, I think factions and envy is what was actually going on in the church in Galatia. I think this is the heart of the book. If you were in, if you ticked all the boxes, if you kept the food laws, if you'd been circumcised, if you were in, it was great. But it was miserable if you were out. Factions and envy ruin relationships. If I follow the sinful nature, the natural me... I cannot keep the law to love others. Actually the opposite. I hurt people. And that's what verses 19 to 21 are there for. And it's worth reading them through and reading them through and saying, how does this hurt people? And every time you'll see that it does. The way of the Holy Spirit could not be more different. What a relief after the gunk of verses 19 to 21 to read verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Now as you read that, let me ask you, who doesn't want to be a person like that? And who doesn't want to live with people like that? Who doesn't want everyone else to be like that? We know that when people live like that, it enhances life, it improves relationships. It's how we love each other, isn't it? That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us, in our lives. He wants us to love one another. That's the point of the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says, verse 16, live by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You will either love people living by the Spirit, or you won't if you live by the human nature. Oh, we'll never be perfect. Paul acknowledges that. Every Christian has a battle going on them in, in, in them for this very issue, whether you're going to live by the Spirit or live by the sinful nature. That's verse 17. See, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. That's a battle, 
Let me tell you about Neil. I met Neil years ago, I mean, so many years ago, I can't remember how many years ago it was now, and it was on the second week of a Discovering Christianity course, as it was called, that I'd been asked to help out with. It was the second week, he hadn't come to week one, and at the end of the meeting, he'd sat through it, and he said to me, I haven't got a clue what all that was about, very humbly, as I'd been teaching. I haven't got a clue what you're going on about, is basically what he was saying. We chatted before he went home, and I encouraged him to come back next week, and he did. I was surprised. I thought he was just clueless, didn't want to know anymore. He came back. That was at the end of week two. At the end of week five, he said to me, I've become a Christian. It was a remarkable turnaround. I haven't even asked anyone to become a Christian at that point on the course. He'd become one. Week two, he didn't understand a word of it. Week five, he'd committed his life to Christ. At the beginning of week six, Neil was very quiet. At the end, I said to him, how was your week? And, and, and close to tears, he said to me, I've blown it. What do you mean you've blown it, I said. Well, he explained to me that he'd been away on business. I, I was in London at the time, and uh, he was uh, in big business, and he went over to Amsterdam quite regularly. He'd often uh, done it uh, for business. And one night, he, he went out with his colleagues, and he got completely smashed during that week, between week five and week six. And he felt terrible. I've blown it, he says. And I said to him, Neil, have you done that before? Gone with your mates and got smashed? Of course I have, all the time. He said, it's what I do, what I used to do. And how did you used to feel about it when you did it all the time before? What do you mean? He said, well, well, did you feel guilty? Of course not, he said. And I said to him, isn't the fact that you feel so bad about it a great sign that the Holy Spirit is living in you? And I took him to this passage and we went through it and we saw that the internal conflict was a mark of the Holy Spirit living in me. People are often asking me, how do I know I've got the Spirit? Have you got this conflict? You, what, you long to live, verses 22 and 23. But you still find yourself falling into verses 19 to 21. But you long to live, verses 22 and 23. That's a mark of the Spirit in you because before you became a Christian, you wouldn't be bothered about that, would you? So Paul says here the Christian life is a battle. Once the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, there's a conflict between the Holy Spirit and the sinful nature. So here's the, here's the key point now. How do we live verses 22 and 23? How do we display the fruit of the Spirit? How do we show real love for others? Well, two things as we close. The first thing is decisive repentance. Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. It's a very powerful image for any real believer. Jesus has been crucified for you. And now the Christian life begins by us crucifying our sinful nature. Wanting to do away with everything that is against God. It needs to be decisive, but it's not quick. That's the point of crucifixion. Crucifixion was a slow, painful death. And like all crucified victims, our sinful nature will struggle to get off the cross. But to overcome it, we must leave it there. Listen to John Stott. He's brilliant on this. The first great secret of holiness lies in the degree and the decisiveness of our repentance. 
If besetting sins persistently plague us, it is either because we have never truly repented or because having repented, we have not maintained our repentance. It's as if having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. We begin to fondle it, to caress it, to long for its release, even to try and take it down again from the cross. We need to leave it there. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades our mind, we must kick it out at once. It is fatal to begin to examine it and consider whether we're going to give in to it or not. We've declared war on it. We're not going to resume negotiations. We have settled the issue for good. We are not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh. We are never going to draw the nails. Isn't that brilliant? Decisive repentance. If you want to walk by the Spirit... If you want to overcome the sinful nature, decisive repentance. Second, determined obedience. Verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. It's the picture of the soldier walking in file, in line. It's the picture of the third dog walking obediently along by his master's side, never wandering away, wagtailing, uh, tail wagging. Be determined each day to walk in the way of the Spirit, says Paul. What does that mean? Well, turn back with me to chapter 3 so that we don't get confused on this issue. Chapter 3, verse 1. We're thinking about what it means to walk by the Spirit and with this we finish. Chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Well, the answer's easy, isn't it? They received the Holy Spirit by believing what they heard. Not by observing the law, but by believing, by trusting the message of the Gospel. So Paul continues, verse 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit... Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God, here's the question, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? It's the same question. And once again, the answer is clear. The Holy Spirit works among them because they believed the word. They believed what they heard. Now you see how that fits in with chapter 5, verse 25 as we go back. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to obey what we read in the Word. For the Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God. And so as we read the Bible, we are reading the Word of the Spirit. We often hear some ridiculous things said about Christchurch forward. Oh yeah, you're, you believe in the, the, the Father, the Son and the Holy Bible. Of course we believe in the Holy Spirit. Who wrote the Holy Bible? The Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God and as we read the Bible, we are reading the Word of the Spirit. And by obeying his Word, I keep in step with the Spirit, in line with him. Of course, he helps me to do what I should do. So it is no surprise that people who immerse themselves in the Bible, who read it every day, live godly lives, in step with the Spirit. It's not automatic though, you can read the Bible and not obey it. 
But be sure of this, if you don't read it, you won't obey it and you won't keep in step with the Spirit. There's no distinction between, well, there's no division that we should drive, no wedge that we should push between the Holy Spirit and his word. So as we close, let me ask you, how's it going? But the Bible reading. And not just reading the Bible, but obeying the word of the Spirit. How's it going? Are you doing it at all? Pick up some explore notes tonight. It's great that uh, in the notice sheet, if you read, the, read your, your Bible every day, and if you use notes, they're free, they're, they're, able, they're available this, uh, tonight to get from the, from the table. And there's some there for people who don't. Pick up some explore notes. I think they're the best ones around. Get into reading the Bible and obeying the Bible. And that is how you keep in step with the Spirit. Or to put it another way, that is how you grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We're free then. In Christ we're free to live as we should live. We're free to do the right thing, to love our neighbours as ourselves. We can't do that apart from Christ. Religion can't do that for us. In fact, it does exactly the opposite. But in Christ, the Holy Spirit will lead us and enable us to live as we should. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Let's pray together. Let me read again the fruit of the Spirit. And as I read it, you might like to think and pray with me that I'd become more like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbour as yourself. Father, please rescue us from religion, from ticking the boxes, from doing that thing which will only result in us biting and devouring each other, destroying each other, becoming conceited and envying each other. Help us much more to live by the Spirit, to want to display the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, that as a church family we will become a church which loves each other deeply from the heart as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray it not only that our, the quality of our relationships will be better, but that as other people look on, they would see something spectacular, supernatural, about the way we love each other. Please chase from this place any measure of rules and regulations and give us a longing to obey the law, love your neighbour as yourself. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are no laws um, that tell us we have to give. There will be some bags coming along. And if you don't want to give,